Hey guys, welcome to Unpopular Opinions with Nick. On this podcast, we will be discussing all things culture, politics, lifestyle, and current events. Come along for the ride. Recapping the Virginia governor election, going all through the Kyle Rittenhouse details, and digging into the unconstitutional OSHA mandate that the Biden administration is trying to push down our throats. All this and more on today's episode of Unpopular Opinions. All right, welcome back to Unpopular Opinions, guys. Sorry, it's been a while. Uh, I meant to get this episode out earlier this week, um, but I got hit with a pretty nasty cold. I couldn't get more than, you know, two minutes in a row without having to, you know, sneeze or cough or something. And I didn't want to subject you guys to that over this podcast. My voice is still recovering a bit, uh, but bear with me. All right, so lots to cover today. Um, The Virginia governor's election. This happened uh, first week of November, and I'm ecstatic about that. Um, Glenn Youngkin beat Democrat Terry McAuliffe, who was running for his second term as Virginia governor. Now, for a little bit of context and people who aren't familiar with uh, Virginia's state laws, you're not allowed to run for two consecutive terms as governor. So uh, Terry McAuliffe was running for his second term. Uh, I think it was four years ago was the end of his first term. So Democrats were technically the incumbent. Um, and so this is why Glenn Youngkin, a Republican coming in, was such a crazy upset. Uh, and a lot of this really centered around uh, a quintessential difference in worldview. Who is responsible for your children. Are you responsible for your children and do you get to determine what choices and what's being taught to them in schools or are you at the mercy of government? And it really comes to how government officials tend to look at themselves. Do these government officials that we elect, do they look at themselves as servants of the people or do they look at themselves as elected gods who know better than you and basically just have to uh, kind of... Uh, convince you into giving them more power because they are the elites. They're the specials. They know better. Um, And I think Virginia is a really telling tale. Virginia basically is red at this point. Um, They've taken back the House in Virginia. They've taken back basically all of Congress. It's all red now, Um, which Biden carried Virginia by a pretty heavy margin. Um, And it was like a 15, 20 point swing from blue to red in almost every county. Um, and so, this is huge. Uh, Virginia is back in play. Maybe not necessarily from a electoral standpoint, but from a state policies standpoint, it's definitely back in play. And Glenn Youngkin campaigned on giving parents control of what their children learn in schools. And I think this also centralizes around uh, the way the school boards kind of tried to brush that sexual assault case that we talked about on the last podcast under the rug. Um, school boards think, you know, they can push CRT, they can push transgender theory, um, and they can do all this without parental consent. And then what the school boards were trying to do is they were trying to shut down any dissent from the parents. Um, you know, parents were reading excerpts from their kids' school books and assigned reading, and the school boards were, I don't want to say so shocked by the language, because I'm sure they use language just as vulgar, if not more, in their personal life, but they were trying to shut these parents down by saying, 
there's children here, this isn't appropriate for children, and that's, like, they're so dense, that's the entire point. Like, the reading selection that was assigned to their children is so vulgar that it is not suitable to be read at a public event where children are present. But that's what was assigned to their kids. And parents parents are smart, and they got fed up. So, Glenn Youngkin knocks out Terry McAuliffe pretty handedly, um, and it's all because of, you know, CRT being pushed, it's the transgender agenda, and it's the fact that there's this fundamental difference in the way Democrats look at how they should govern versus conservatives. And I think many conservatives, not all of them, but many conservatives realize that they are meant to be servants of the people. They are not elected gods. They are not elected leaders, so-called, because they are meant to do the will of the people, not their own will, right? Um, additionally, we have Winsome Sears, who is the first black lieutenant governor in Virginia history, and she is a black woman. Now, this is funny to me because all across leftist media, right, CNN, MSNBC, you have these pundits saying that uh, these are, like, well, when, for example, when Larry Elder was running in California against Gavin Newsom, Larry Elder, also a black conservative, he is the black face of white supremacy. And they're saying the same thing about Winsome Sears. You would think, you would think with the left's agenda of pushing racial and gender equality that a black woman winning a lieutenant governor seat in Virginia, the first black lieutenant governor in Virginia history, would be something they're shouting from the rooftops. But no, because it's ideology above everything else. They claim to be the party of the tolerant, the tolerant party, but they're not. They are very, very intolerant of any viewpoints except their own. So if there is a black conservative, you're, you don't fall into this protected class of, you know, black people or women. First of all, this tells you that these narratives about people being oppressed is all bullshit. Okay. Pardon my language, but it's bullshit. All they do are using these racial identities to further their leftist, socialist, liberal agendas and gather up more power for themselves at the top. And so they become the specials while the normal American people will get the scraps. They want to build themselves into an elite on the backs of basically group psychology and this liberal ideology. And we can't let them do that. And I think the reason they hate black Republicans so much is because the f fact that they have brains in their heads and can have a different viewpoint than the leftist narrative that you'll see on CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, all of these major stations, all the mainstream media, it makes their heads explode and it goes against their narrative. They cannot, they cannot suffer for anyone to go against their narrative. They have to have single-minded one-party control in order for these policies that they want to get pushed down because they don't make sense. They don't work. We're almost a year into the Biden administration, and we can see clearly and obviously that these policies do not work. We are in the middle of massive inflation, biggest inflation in like 30 plus years, right? But the narrative must stay intact. So it's never Biden's fault. Oh no, it's supply chain. It's this, that, or the other thing. It's never the policy's fault. It's never the Democrats' fault. When clearly we can see it is. Don't believe your lying eyes 
Believe what the media tells you. And we're going to get into that more when you talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Because the media, again, has to push the narrative over the truth. And that should tell you everything you need to know about where to put your trust and how much faith you should have in these institutions. Speaking of institutional faith, the FBI has no more institutional trust. That is the central theme of this episode. And we'll get into that later. And it plays directly into everything we're talking about with Kyle Rittenhouse. But to keep celebrating the wins, um, and especially today's a great day because um, the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict just came out a couple hours ago. He came back uh, not guilty on all counts, which congratulations to him. That's fantastic, phenomenal news. We'll go through all the details of the case, all the lies you're going to hear in the media, um, and all the details from the trial. Um, I'm incredibly excited for Kyle. I'm so happy that justice was actually served today because this case wasn't even close. It shouldn't have even been brought. But again, the narrative is more important than the truth. Okay? So, in addition to this conservative pushback that we're seeing against this leftist ideology, we have Glenn Youngkin beating Terry McAuliffe. We have Winsome Sears, the first black lieutenant governor in Virginia. Ed Durr is a truck driver from New Jersey. He beat the Senate president... Democratic Senate President Stephen Sweeney, by 2,000 votes, he decided to run because he was denied a concealed carry permit, and he only spent $2,300 on his campaign. Okay, there were initial reports that he spent like 150 and half of that went to Dunkin' Donuts, but now campaign filings show he spent about 2300 Still, this is huge. Like, $2,300 to spend on a campaign— to take out one of the most powerful Democrats in New Jersey is absolutely insane to me. And that kind of gives me hope for anyone who wants to run in a local race. You don't have to have these big budgets. Like, if you can get enough momentum behind you, if you can find the central issue that, you know, is important to your community, you can beat these politicians. They are not some elected class of people they're not a different they're normal people and they can be beaten um and more new jersey news the governor race uh unfortunately phil murphy beat jack Chitterelli, uh the republican challenging him by a razor thin margin and there's a lot of weirdness that happened with that um i won't get into that here because we could go down a whole bunch of different rabbit holes um, but we ha- we saw some very similar things on election night 2020 with, you know, vote counts just shooting straight up out of the blue, you know, vote dumps, uh, all kinds of weird things. But this should have been a blowout for the Democrats, and it was a razor, razor thin election. So this tells you that there is a very strong backlash to what's being done in this country right now, and I think we need to keep the momentum going. Additionally, uh, Biden's approval rating is in record record lows at this point um media institutions will say that oh well it's not as bad as trump's was at this point um and they are they're wrong because biden according to usa today is at a 38 percent approval rating less than a year into his presidency and the funnier thing that makes me cackle like the joker is kamala harris her approval rating as vice president is 28 percent I did not know that it was physically possible to have an approval rating of 28%. Like, that is so incredibly low. That's three-fourths of the country dislike you. 
That's so bad. I mean, it makes sense. She was the very first person that had to drop out of the Democratic primary, and she could not even carry her home state of California. She is just one of the worst, one of the worst people in public life. Actually, just in general. She's terrible. She's inauthentic. She's not genuine. Everything she does has a hidden agenda and a hidden motive. And I think I heard uh, another commentator say that she makes Hillary Clinton look like, you know, the most warm, inviting, sincere person in the world, which is a very tough thing to do because Hillary Clinton is also just detestable. But Kamala is so much worse. So from this USA Today article, uh, nearly half of people surveyed, uh, 46% said Biden has done a worse job as president than they expected, including 16% of those who voted for him. Um, independence by a seven to one margin, 44% versus 6% say he has done worse, not better than they expected. Um, independence, I think is where Biden made his biggest inroads against Trump. If you believe that the 2020 election was fair, um, nearly two thirds of Americans said 64% or sorry, 64% of Americans say they do not want Biden to run for a second term in 2024. That includes 28% over a fourth of Democrats. Um, opposition to Trump running for another term in 2024 stands at 58%, and that includes 24% of Republicans. So clearly, neither party is a huge fan of their potential incumbents right now, but that's 64% don't want Biden to run. I mean, we should probably just clear house. Just a thought. Um, Kamala's approval rating at 28% still makes me laugh. Um, the poll from USA Today shows that 51% of people approve of the job she's doing, or sorry, disapprove of the job she's doing. Um, one in five, or 21%, are undecided. So she's just absolutely in the gutter. So terrible. Um, and then Americans supposedly overwhelmingly support the infrastructure bill that Biden signed, uh, was it yesterday, I think? But they are split on this more expensive and further-reaching Build Back Better Act uh, that's being debated in Congress currently. Uh, at this point, only one in four say the bill's provision would help them and their families. Um, honestly, neither one of these bills should have been passed. They are just stuffed full with bloated spending that's not going to go towards infrastructure anyway. Um, the Democrats didn't actually have the votes for it to get it through the House, um, and a whole bunch of these rhino Republicans basically gave it to them. So I think there were 14 Republicans who voted for the infrastructure bill, and it was almost all of them were from New York and New Jersey because if you look in the bill, that's where a huge chunk of the money is going. Um, we really need to redo how bills get passed in this country. I think there needs to be a limit of like five or 10 pages because these gigantic multi-thousand page omnibus packages, no one can actually go through them. It is impossible. And it... All it does is it obfuscates the process and it allows people to just say, oh, I didn't know that was in there. And also just abdicate responsibility because no one knows who put what provision in in the law. Instead, if every law and amendment has to be, you know, signed separately or limited to 10 pages, then every single person who wants to put something in has to sponsor part of the bill. And you know what they sponsored. But that's another conversation. All right. Getting into the big news of the day, the big news of the week. This has become probably one of the biggest trials that I've seen in my lifetime. Um, 
and <laughs> the reason it's a big trial is because the juxtaposition is incredible. The narrative from the media and the facts in the case, the video footage that you see have no, like they're not even close. The media are showing that they have no, media and the Democratic Party are showing that they have no basis in reality. They have no interest and no desire in providing facts to you. They are propagandists. At their core, that is what they have been for as long as I can remember at this point. And none of them should be believed anymore. At this point, everyone is better off doing their own independent research and not believing a single thing that any of the talking heads on MSNBC or CNN say. Period. CNN's ratings are already in the tank. The only people that watch are those who are stuck in airports anyway. But you just have to understand everything they do is propaganda. So let's get into the trial. Kyle Rittenhouse, for anyone who's not aware, at the time in summer, I believe August of 2020, there were major riots going on in Kenosha, Wisconsin. These riots were right on the tail of the George Floyd riots. This, the Kenosha riots, happened because of a man named Jacob Blake. Jacob Blake was an African-American man who was shot by police. Now, the narrative you will hear is he was shot in the back seven times. This is factually true. However, they leave out the context. And you cannot take anything without context. Jacob Blake was a criminal who was at his, I believe, ex-wife's house or baby mama's house trying to steal her kids. So, this woman called the cops because Jacob Blake was trying to steal her kids, right? After he had digitally raped her, and by digits I'm talking fingers, right? So, he sexually violated her, is trying to take her kids away. She calls the cops. The cops show up. This is all on video, by the way. The cops showing up, not anything else, right? That would be disturbing and messed up. So the cops show up. They talk with Jacob Blake. He resists arrest and begins walking towards his car. You can see the cops saying, don't get in the car, yelling at him to stop, trying to apprehend him. He tells the cops that he has a knife in the car. He goes to the car to grab the knife on the floorboard of his car. At this point, that is when the cops shoot. The cop is literally within arm's reach. They are trying to grab Jacob Blake and take him into custody. At this time, he reaches into the car, grabs a knife while within arm's reach of a cop, and that is when the cop shoots. However, the media spins this as unarmed black man shot in the back seven times. Clearly not true. The headline should have read, Man resisting arrest and reaching for a knife shot seven times. Okay? So this incident is the catalyst for all of the riots in Kenosha. So night one, a whole bunch of riots go off. Everything's burning. It's hilarious. CNN, with egg on their face, because they are so dishonest, has a reporter standing out there saying, well, you can see these are fiery, but mostly peaceful riots. Literally half the town is on fire. But they're, quote-unquote, mostly peaceful riots. Just... Please shut up and go home. 
Like, no one believes your lies. So, night two. Kyle Rittenhouse, who lives in Antioch, Illinois, which, if you look it up on a map, I encourage you to do this. Go to Google Maps, type in Antioch, Illinois, and look at where it is in relation to Kenosha, Wisconsin. For those of you who don't want to do this, Antioch is literally on the border. It is on the border of Illinois and Wisconsin. Kenosha is 25 minutes away. Now, Kyle lived with his mom in Antioch, his dad, and other members of his family lived in Kenosha. So one of the lies you will hear is, Kyle had no reason to be in Kenosha that night. False. He was a part of that community. He was a lifeguard in that community. And he had family in that community. 30 minutes away, like, I don't know where you live, but if you, generally 30 minutes is pretty standard in any city in America to go anywhere, right? There are cities in America, you can drive 30 minutes and still be in the same city. So, being 30 minutes away, you are absolutely part of that community. So, Kyle Rittenhouse goes to Kenosha the day after the first night of riots, and there are pictures of him washing graffiti off of courthouses, schools, and then he stays that night with his med kit and an AR-15 for self-defense to provide medical care for anybody that needs it while defending these car source lots. So one of these car source lots was set completely ablaze. He, a friend of his, and a few other people were going to defend another car source lot for the owner. Okay. So he has a med kit. He has an AR-15. There's video of him saying he's been sprayed in the face with pepper spray. Okay. And that he has the AR for his own protection and he has a med kit. And at the end of the clip, he goes to give medical treatment to somebody out in the crowd. Th these are all videos that are out online of Kyle Rittenhouse. You can find pictures of him scrubbing graffiti. You can find pictures of him giving first aid to people that night. And then he gets separated from his group. So he went out into the crowd to give medical care to somebody. And then as he's coming back, the route back gets cut off by the police. He cannot go that way. So, what happens after this? He starts walking towards a gas station because it's there's a lot of people there. There's lights. He thinks it's probably the most safe place to be. You know, if you're in the middle of somewhere that's been riding, you don't want to be caught in a dark alley alone. He arrives at the gas station. This is where, and there are videos of this. This is where... Kyle runs into a man by the name of Joseph Rosenbaum. Let's give some context that was not allowed into the court. Joseph Rosenbaum, now, again, Kyle didn't know this at the time, but I think this is relevant information to go to the character of the people involved and also the mental state of the people involved. Um, and, you know, generally, I'm going to quote Dr. Phil here, the biggest indicator of future behavior is previous behavior. So let's give some background and context on Joseph Rosenbaum. Joseph Rosenbaum is a serial child sex abuser. He is a career pedophile, if you will. He was charged with 11 counts of child molestation and inappropriate sexual activity with children, including anal rape, 
His victims were 9 to 11 years old. There were five victims. And he had open misdemeanor battery cases. So this happened when he, I think, was in Arizona at the age of 19 is when he was uh, convicted or arrested, charged, and convicted with some of these crimes. Okay? Registered sex offender, Joseph Rosenbaum. We come to find out later that night the reason he was on the streets was he had been released from a mental institution and he was not allowed to be at his, I don't know, girlfriend's house because of a restraining order. Like, he could not stay there. So he was out on the streets at this gas station. That's when he runs into Kyle Rittenhouse. There is video, very clear video, of Joseph Rosenbaum looking like a crazy person, yelling at Kyle Rittenhouse, shoot me, inward, shoot me, inward. Kyle does nothing at this point. Further testimony said from others that night said Joseph Rosenbaum threatened Kyle's life. He said to Kyle, if I catch you alone, I will kill you. Okay, this is before anything happens. This is at the gas station. All right. Next, the next thing we see, and this was the, the linchpin of the argument. Next thing we see, Kyle is trying to find a way to get back to car source. Um, he was going to go to another car source to defend that lot since he couldn't get back to his friends. Meanwhile, he was trying to put out fires. He had a, uh, a fire extinguisher in his left hand. So he's running. He sees a building on fire, runs towards it. Out from behind cars, Joseph Rosenbaum ambushes Kyle Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse drops the fire extinguisher and runs to a point where he does get cornered by Joseph Rosenbaum. Then there is a, a shot that rings out that is not Kyle, and it's by a person we found out during the trial by the name of uh, Joshua Zeminski. Fires around in the air, which, in case anyone's unfamiliar, is a felony. So, Kyle turns around. Rosenbaum is basically on top of him at this point, And Kyle fires. He fires four shots. There are burn marks on Rosenbaum's hand from trying to grab the rifle. Kyle shoots Joseph Rosenbaum four times. And at this point, that's when he... Like, Joseph Rosenbaum basically is dead at this point. Kyle then gets on his phone to call help, circles back around to see if he can help Joseph Rosenbaum until a crowd starts gathering, at which point he begins running because they are yelling things like, get his ass, cranium him. So he starts running towards the police, fully intending to report everything that happened. He's also running to not get murdered by this mob of people. This is now where you will see multiple, multiple, multiple videos online, some of them with very bad narration, and sometimes it's chopped up. You will see in this video, Kyle Rittenhouse is running down the street towards the police line. He gets hit in the back of the head with a chunk of concrete. Okay. Next, 
Someone comes up behind him and punches him in the back of the head. This causes him to fall down. As he falls down, he's on his back, spins around to watch people coming up on him. Some dude, who at no point during the trial was ever identified, freaking jump kicks him at his face. Kyle doesn't shoot. Another guy, Anthony Huber, comes up with a skateboard. Using it like a bat, takes a swing at Kyle's head. As he's going across to hit Kyle and going over the top of Kyle's body, because Kyle is on his back at this point, okay, facing the opposite direction of where he was running. As he's getting hit in the head with this skateboard, he fires, I think, two shots at Anthony Huber because he's getting hit in the head with a freaking skateboard. Which, I don't know if any of you guys remember when you were maybe in high school or middle school and you tried to skateboard. Skateboards are freaking, they can be heavy, they can hurt. Like, just, if you're curious, imagine swinging a skateboard as hard as you can at a wall in your house. It'd leave a pretty big freaking mark. Now imagine that hitting your neck or your head. So, Kyle shoots as Anthony Huber goes across him. Then, Gage Grosskreutz runs up, stops, puts his hands up in the air, like, don't shoot, don't shoot. Okay, Kyle then proceeds to lower his rifle. And then, Grosskreutz draws his firearm. Grosskreutz has a Glock 27. Grosskreutz draws his firearm brings it down towards Kyle's face as he begins to approach, and Kyle, at that point, shoots Grosskreutz in the bicep. This is all on video. And you can see, if you watch the video close enough, you can pause it, zoom it. The bullet hits Grosskreutz in the bicep, and you can zoom in and you can see the firearm in his hand. Grosskreutz, the gym that he is, lied to police because when the gun was on the ground, he said that it fell out of his holster, which is a lie. Also, Grosskreutz has every uh, incentive to lie because he's suing the city of Kenosha for $10 million. Oh, by the way, Grosskreutz also has multiple misdemeanors, misuse of a dangerous weapon, and then Anthony Huber, Captain Skateboard, um, he was guilty of his background, Domestic abuse, where he threatened his brother and grandmother with a knife. He choked his brother, and he was charged with strangulation, suffocation, and false imprisonment. These are all felonies. So, we have three felons. Sorry, Grosskreutz doesn't have a felony. Just multiple misdemeanors. Two felons, and another criminal, attacking Kyle Rittenhouse. And he gets put on trial for murder by this corrupt, crooked prosecutor who, if you've watched 10 seconds of the trial, is so bad. He is the worst prosecutor I think I've ever seen in my life. He must have gotten his law degree off of a Cracker Jack box. Also, his last name is Binger, which is hilarious. So, every single... Uh, Witness, the prosecution brought, turned into a defense witness. Because this was such a weak case. They had nothing. This was so crystal clear cut self-defense. But, so, he was on trial for 
uh, murders, um, underage possession of a firearm. Um, that was probably the strongest one because he was 17 at the time and he had a rifle. The way the law was written in Kenosha, the judge actually threw this out because uh, it's pretty clear he could have, in certain instances, had a rifle legally as long as it wasn't a short-barreled shotgun or a short-barreled rifle. The rifle was not, so the judge threw that charge out. That was the strongest case the prosecution had to get any sort of conviction. So here's some of the claims uh, that you're going to hear from the media. One we've already gone through. Criminal backgrounds are irrelevant to the shootings. That's false, okay, as we've gone through. I think it's pretty relevant because if you have a 17-year-old kid and then you have multiple felons attacking him, I think it's pretty clear to know who would be instigating that scenario. Uh, They also called Kyle a white supremacist. President Biden has called him a white supremacist. They put him in a white supremacist, like calling, they called him a white supremacist in a campaign commercial. Um, I think every pundit that's been on CNN and MSNBC have called him white supremacist, MAGA crazed, uh, Proud Boy, like every potential uh, slanderous term you could imagine. Um, one of the shows I was watching today had a super cut of all these, and I hope, I hope Kyle Rittenhouse becomes just unbelievably wealthy from all of the defamation cases that he has a very good shot of winning after this. Um, so let's go over some of the facts at the trial. So again, Another thing you're going to hear from the media is uh, Kyle Rittenhouse crossed state lines with a firearm. Nope. False. Didn't happen. Kyle Rittenhouse had his friend buy a firearm for him to keep at his house, at his friend's house. So I think his friend was, uh, I can't remember his name, Mr. Black. So Kyle Rittenhouse gave his friend money to buy an assault or an AR. And until Kyle was 18 years old, that firearm was going to stay at his friend's house because he was not legally allowed to have that firearm in Illinois, right? So the gun never crossed state lines into Illinois. The gun was always in Wisconsin, period, full stop. So, next. Kyle was, in fact, protecting car source lots from riders. This also came out in the trial. Um... In fact, his friends were on the roof of one of the car sources, and they had chemical freaking bombs thrown at them. I'm sorry, what? I'm surprised that they didn't shoot. So, again, as we went through in the uh, timeline of events, Kyle Rittenhouse, he could not return to the original car source lot due to a police barricade. That's when he went to a gas station and encountered Rosebaum. Um, these are all facts that came out on the stand during the trial. Uh, again, further threats from Rittenhouse, or from Rosenbaum to Rittenhouse. If I get you alone, I'm going to kill you. Um, Rittenhouse left the gas station, go to another car source lot, puts out fires. Rosenbaum ambushed him. Zeminski fired the shots. Uh, also, there was a claim that Rosenbaum was unarmed. That also was false. There was evidence shown during the trial that Rosenbaum had a chain in his hand. He also reached for Kyle's firearm. 
I don't know who you are, but if you think you can reach for a firearm without getting shot, you are probably a stupid person. If you start chasing somebody and attempt to reach for a firearm that is on their person, you will more than likely get shot. Don't reach for other people's guns. Period. Also, don't be a career pedophile and, you know, go out and riot. Just a thought. Um, let's see here. Anthony Huber hit Rittenhouse with a skateboard, knocks him down. Um, and then Grosskreutz, this was my favorite part of the trial. You can find this. Uh, this is all over the place where Grosskreutz actually admits to drawing his firearm and advancing on Rittenhouse before he gets shot in the bicep. And the words he uses, he says, um, that's my bicep was vaporized. Uh, pretty funny, but he, at, uh, this is even funnier at the time, Grosskreutz had an illegal firearm because he had an expired gun permit. So really he shouldn't have even had that gun on him anyway. So again, every single piece of information the media has tried to give you about this case is completely wrong and completely unfactual. They're trying to make this case about race, right? No one in this case was black. The two men that died and the third that got shot, every single one of them was white. Kyle Rittenhouse, also white. But because you agree with Black Lives Matter, you become black adjacent and that, therefore, it makes it racial. No, that's stupid. So, don't let anyone make this about race. This was not about race. This was a very obvious black and white case of self-defense, period. I, I don't understand how anyone can see it otherwise. The media and the left are twisting themselves into unbelievable pretzels to try and tell you that this is an unjust verdict. Kyle Rittenhouse should be in jail. He's a racist. He's a white supremacist. Uh, no, he's none of those things. He's absolutely somebody who had the stones to go clean up his community, provide aid in his community, and then had to defend his life in his community when he was attacked by people in a mob. So, in addition to all of the major media outlets, which, before I get too far off point, uh, this trial, the jury took like three days to come back which I thought was really long. Um, and there have been some theories that maybe they were just trying to wait it out, make it seem like they were actually deliberating at least a decent amount of time because this is such, like such an obvious case. Um, but there was a lot of shenanigans that also went on during this, this trial. Prosecution... I think was trying to bait a mistrial. They were either so inept or so incompetent that they got reamed by the judge. Reamed by the judge. Like three or four times. So, uh, Binger tries to comment on the fact that when Kyle turned himself in the next day at the police station, Binger tries to comment on Rittenhouse remaining silent, which, as the judge rightly reprimanded it is not allowable to comment on somebody's 
right to remain silent as an admission of guilt. So he gets like seven, ten words into his line of questioning, and the judge sends the very calmly sends the jury out and just lays into Binger. It's terrible. Um, he tried to sneak in exhibits that the judge had previously ruled out, and you know he just is a slimy little like corrupt government official essentially, like the worst slimy sleazy prosecutor. <laughs> that you can think of, that's basically Binger. You know, that's how he came off, and I'm pretty sure that's how he is. Um, he was trying to sk- slide by, skirt the rules. Like, I've never seen someone get so reprimanded so fiercely in a court of law. Like, apparently this guy's an experienced attorney, and he was trying to show the jury exhibits and evidence that the judge had explicitly... Not allowed. It it was unbelievable. Then the at the end of the trial, while the jury is deliberating, <clears throat> we come to find out that the prosecution was hiding evidence from the defense. So apparently there's some high definition drone footage that the prosecution had. They said they provided the drone footage to the defense, which is not technically untrue, but in the manner it kind of is. Because the footage that they gave to the defense was, like, really compressed. Very difficult to make out, very difficult to see, very pixelated. It was about three megabytes. The high-definition footage that the prosecution used in the courtroom and tried to give to the jury while they were deliberating was about 11 to 12 megabytes. So this footage was not only compressed, which you could say, okay, maybe it got compressed via an email, which generally doesn't happen. Most emails send attachments less than 25 megabytes without any issue, without any compression. Uh, They said maybe it's because of an iPhone, an Android thing. Like, they threw everything under the sun. And then the defense team said, hey, uh, the metadata, first of all, the name is different than the file that you're using. Second of all, the metadata on my file says it was made 20 minutes after your file was made. So the prosecution was actively trying to find any way to screw the defense in this case. And then while the jury while the trial was going on we also had black lives matter protesting at the courthouse we had uh a bailiff had to apprehend a phone from somebody because they were recording the jury so they had to apprehend the phone delete the video um and then MSNBC was caught tailing the jury bus in the middle of deliberations. It's just absolutely unbelievable to me the amount of BS that can go on in this trial in order for the media, the left, Black Lives Matter, all of these organizations to attempt to intimidate the jury into giving them the outcome that they want. It's so insane to me. And so before I get ahead of myself, uh, 
I want to tell I want to give you the statement that NBC gave to CNN about the journalist, producer, freelancer, whatever they want to say he is, um, about this person trailing them. So this is going to come from the Daily Wire. NBC News told CNN in a statement, Last night, a freelancer received a traffic citation. While the traffic violation took place near the jury van, the freelancer never contacted or intended to contact the jurors during deliberations and never photographed or intended to photograph them. We regret the incident and will fully cooperate with the authorities on any investigation. So this is what NBC News told CNN. They said it was a freelancer. However, when the cops pulled this man over for running a red light to follow the bus, uh, the police stopped him because he was following at a distance of about a block and went through a red light, pulled him over and inquired of him what was going on. He gave information that stated that he had been instructed to follow the jury bus. This is from Judge Schrader, who was overseeing the Kyle Rittenhouse case. So with this information, he then banned MSNBC from the rest of the trial, which is hilarious to me and also fully justified. I really think this is a criminal case at this point. Like Trailing a sequestered jury bus seems like a blatant breaking of the law and is used to intimidate the jury. Like, what other reasons can you think? So, explain to me how you would have an impartial jury when the jury is being followed by the mainstream media, videotaped by somebody in the court. Like, what is the plan here? Are they going to dox these jurors if they don't get the verdict that they want? Are they going to dox these jurors before deliberation to see, you know, to pressure them to convict Kyle when all the evidence points to a not guilty verdict? So... Again, for anyone who's not familiar, in a criminal case, it is beyond a reasonable doubt. And so the charge of murder, you had to be sure beyond a reasonable doubt that Kyle Rittenhouse went to Kenosha to kill these people. There's not a single person in this world who is intellectually authentic and intellectually honest with themselves that says he went across state lines to murder people. You watch the video, like, he's running from people. Oh, like, before any shots get fired, he's running away. If he went there to shoot people, he would not be running away, period. So, on that burden, period, clearly not guilty. But, watching all the footage from the day before, from that night, He's giving medical care to people in the crowd. He helped a woman with a sprained ankle before the shooting happened. Kyle Rittenhouse is obviously not guilty. He clearly did not go there to cause violence. He only wanted to prevent violence from happening and support his community. Which really is more than can be said about the cops in that situation because the night before... Everyone in that city let the entire place freaking burn. So, when the jury went into deliberation, the uh, governor of Wisconsin made sure to have 500 National Guardsmen on standby for when the verdict came back. Because, God forbid, we have more riots because the media and Black Lives Matter didn't get the head that they wanted. Like, this is so ridiculous. And I'm, I'm just so glad that Kyle Rittenhouse hasn't had his entire life ruined because of this. And I also cannot wait 
Like I said earlier, I cannot wait until he is rich beyond his imagination from the defamation lawsuits because these people, these liberal Democrats, are so deranged, okay? They cannot wrap their head around the reality that is that even after the verdict was read, after the trial is over, after these facts are no longer in dispute, they still put out stupid, stupid tweets like the freaking dumbass mayor of New York. Bill de Blasio, I hope, is the number one defendant in a defamation lawsuit against basically everyone and their brother. Because the mainstream media has lied and lied and lied and lied about this case just to push their narrative. So de Blasio, after the uh, verdict is read, puts out a tweet that I hope has been, I mean, it's for sure been screenshotted and you can get it anywhere. He says, Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum are victims. First of all, no, they are not. There's not a single person with two brain cells and working eyes that would say that they are victims. He goes, Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum are victims. They should be alive today. The only reason they're not is because a violent, dangerous man chose to take a gun across state lines and start shooting people. To call this a miscarriage of justice is an understatement. And the funniest thing is, none of that is true. This is just like carte blanche to sue whoever you want at this point because all these left-wing figures are going to lie their asses off about you. So have fun. Take their money. Because guess what? They are, not, they are not making these statements in good faith. They are intentionally trying to defame. So please, 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 Kyle Rittenhouse, I support you in all of your lawsuits against these absolutely dishonest, despicable people. All right. <clears throat> so, whew, that was a lot. But we have more. I know this is, it's been a while, so this is going to be another long one, and I apologize, but please bear with me, guys. Because one of the big themes about this show is going to be the FBI. And the Kyle Rittenhouse case was a big deal. It was a big story. So I had to devote some time to it because the, mo the longer it went on, the more egregious the media lying was. But this leads into the FBI being an absolutely garbage, garbage, trash organization filled with just career bureaucrats who don't have your best interests at heart. And when Trump talked about the deep state, this kind of shit is exactly what he was talking about. So in the Rittenhouse trial, we found out that there was an FBI tape of drone footage over Kenosha the night of the Kyle Rittenhouse incident. Why the hell is it the FBI, first of all, flying a drone over Kenosha and not doing anything about it? The defense was never made aware of this tape until trial. So the prosecution, I'm sure, had this. But the defense never got this until trial, okay? How effed up is that? That should have been the first thing the FBI did. Say, hey, here's a video we had of the night that this happened. But apparently, supposedly, the FBI had lost it. They also couldn't find the high-def footage, so you're left with this kind of grainy infrared footage and it clearly shows Rosenbaum ambushing Rittenhouse so just you know more fuel for the defense's case but the FBI is full of either incompetent or malicious actors who do not have 
the American people's best interests at heart. They are political partisans who want to use the power of the federal government to cram down their ideologies on the American people. Guess what? These people are not voted in. They are not accountable to the American people in any way, shape, or form. And in my opinion, and probably the founder's opinion, that's despicable that anyone in the government would have that much power and not be accountable to the people they are intended to serve. So, moving on with some more FBI debauchery, uh, the FBI decides to raid Project Veritas. Now, say what you will about how James O'Keefe and his organization goes about doing their reporting. You can think it's, you know, gotcha journalism. You can say maybe you think it's dishonest. Uh, maybe you think he takes things out of context. I don't care. I think he's done some pretty good investigative work. But this, again, if we're going to say that CNN and MSNBC and ABC and CBS and Good Morning America and USA Today are all valid reporters and nonpartisan journalists and Chris Cuomo is a journalist or Don Lemon, then James O'Keefe has just as much right to call himself a journalist as these clowns. So the FBI raids Project Veritas. They raided the headquarters. Um, they raided James O'Keefe's place of business and two other employees. Now, they had a warrant for something that I had never heard of. And I pay quite a bit of attention to political stories and politics. There was apparently a diary stolen or misplaced from Ashley Biden, the former vice president's daughter. So first question, when does a diary warrant an FBI raid? I can't imagine anyone having anything valuable enough in a diary that it would warrant A, an FBI investigation, B, an FBI warrant, and C, a raid from the FBI. And this diary was never even published because Project Veritas and James O'Keefe could not verify the authenticity of it. So instead of risking their journalistic integrity by publishing something they did not have authenticity validation for they didn't they didn't do anything with it okay they also tried to get it returned they tried to turn it into the th authorities they tried to get it returned to the owner um and james o'keefe has a statement on youtube that he put out about this so i'll link to that in the description but the funniest thing is the democrats in power right now are so stupid that this basically confirms the authenticity of the diary. If this diary were completely fake, which many people thought it was, why send the FBI after it? So now this is going to get many more ears, many more eyes than it ever would have had they just let it be. So allegedly the diary was stolen. The source who had the diary claims it was left behind in a room that Ashley Biden stayed in. So I did some digging into this diary, and uh, I've got links to the text. It's hosted at a place called MarcoPoloUSA.org, um, and Ashley Biden in this diary says she believes she had, when she was younger, had inappropriate showers with her father, uh, being hypersexualized at a young age, 
She thinks she may have been molested. Um, she has thoughts about, or she has, uh, basically, she's sleeping with a married man while being married and having conflicting thoughts about this. Like, it's, again, stuff you would write in a diary that nobody would have ever seen or heard of in major circles because it wasn't a big story until the FBI and the people behind the FBI had to be stupid enough to go and use this as a tool to prosecute and persecute journalists. This is absolutely insane. And this is what's even more sinister. Uh, the New York Times, who is being sued by James O'Keefe for numerous things, apparently got the scoop on these FBI raids, even when the FBI told James O'Keefe and Project Veritas to not publicize this because it was supposed to be like an undercover thing. But the New York Times publishes a piece literally minutes to hours after the raids happen. This is collusion between the media and the FBI that is absolutely unheard of. So now we have the two branches of government that are meant to check them each other colluding together. So now we have the media controlling the narrative and also being able to sick the enforcement arm of the federal government on anyone they deem necessary. This is a this is communist R Russia shit. Like, this is the kind of crap they do in China like they did with COVID when they went and arrested a doctor for trying to expose COVID because he said, hey, there's a new virus. Chinese authorities came in and said, oh, he's lying. They made him state a retraction. And then after they arrested him, and then he died of COVID. Like, this is what communists do. The FBI's a joke. Next, this uh, relates to my previous podcast where uh, Merrick Garland put out a memo about using uh, the DOJ to track threats against school board members. Well, guess what? The FBI is now using counterterrorism tactics to monitor, quote-unquote, threats to school board officials. The question is, what constitutes a threat? Is it somebody yelling at a school board meeting? Is it somebody putting up impassioned posts on Facebook? Is it an insult? God forbid. So now they're monitoring parents for quote-unquote threats to school board officials. Whereas Merrick Garland had said, oh no, I didn't tell the Department of Justice to do that and lied to Congress. Like, we're being governed by a bunch of assholes. This is, this is so terrible. And so, again, it's kind of a, a, a balance, right? What do you attribute to malice and what do you attribute to stupidity? Generally, the rule is never attribute to malice that which can be explained by stupidity. However, how many coincidences, if you want to call them that, are too, too many? The New York Times having exclusive scoops on private FBI raids. Hmm. Doesn't seem like a coincidence. Uh, school board uh, threats being tracked by the FBI when 
Merrick Garland said that that wasn't going to happen. Um, FBI withholding evidence in criminal trials. Oh, and surveilling, you know, just wide swaths of the country without any reason. So how much do we attribute... And then losing the tape. So how much do we attribute to malice or incompetence? Either one is not good. Like, that entire organization needs to be cleaned from the top down. And here is the icing on the cake. All right? We had four years of investigations, the media, Democrats yelling, Trump-Russia collusion! Russia, Russia, Russia! Russiagate! Trump pees on hookers in Russia! All of these things that were said by the media, which I don't know why Trump hasn't sued them, but maybe he can't because he's a public figure. All of this Russiagate bullshit, just absolute bullshit, that was peddled and laundered from the Democratic Party through the media to the FBI cost us however many tax dollars, how many millions upon billions, at least, tax dollars, the Mueller investigation, which lasted two years. We waste... This single thing, this single issue we're about to talk about, was hung around Trump's neck, used to hang the FBI and special prosecutors around Trump's neck for four years. And potentially destroy his presidency by giving CNN, who had a singular goal of getting Trump out of office, all the headlines they wanted. So, when Trump was talking about the deep state, just keep an open mind when you hear this story. So Andy McCarthy wrote an article in the New York Post about Steele dossier. I'll give you the quick headline here. The FBI knew the Steele dossier, which was used as the uh, basis for every single FISA court warrant and wiretap under the USA Patriot Act for tapping and investigating the Trump campaign. The Steele dossier. The FBI knew it was bullshit since 2017. And just now it's 2021 and they're finally coming clean about it. They knew this was bullshit four years ago. So Igor Danchenko was the main source for the Steele dossier. He was arrested, just recently, for lying to the FBI on five counts. The Steele dossier was the basis for FISA court warrants to spy on Trump's campaign. Igor Danchenko, who was a Russian native working at the Brookings Institution, alongside Strobe Talbot, who was the Institute president. So Danchenko, Russian native, lived in the U.S., worked at the Brookings Institute with Strobe Talbot, the president of the Institute, and also, coincidentally enough, a friend of Bill Clinton. Weird. This guy, Talbot, also worked in the Clinton State Department. Huh. So crazy how that happens. So, uh, John Durham who's working in the FBI, his indictment alleges that Denchenko lied about two major points. This is coming from Andy McCarthy's 
article in the New York Post. First, he fabricated the claim that the president of the Russian-American Chamber of Commerce informed him that during the 2016 presidential campaign, Trump was involved in a well-developed conspiracy of cooperation with the regime of Russian President Vladimir Putin. In reality, the indictment says this conversation never happened. So, firstly, Danchenko says, yeah, Trump's conspir conspiring with Vladimir Putin from a conversation that he had. Never happened. Next, the chamber president is not identified by name in the indictment, which we now know is Strobe Talbot. Uh, after the Steele dossier became public, however, there was intense speculation that the chamber's founder, Sergei Milian, was a Steele dossier source. Andy McCarthy goes on, As I recounted in my book, Russiagate, Ball of Collusion, Milian denied being a source and trashed the dossier as fake news created by sick minds. Danchenko is also alleged to have concealed the that one of his sources for the information he provided to Steele was a longtime Democratic Party operative who was close to the Clintons. Wow! Oh my God, the Clintons are coming up a lot in this story. I wonder what... what I'm. Oh, that's right. Hillary Clinton was running for president at the time. So we have, essentially, Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State under President Barack Obama, and Bill Clinton, who was a former president, using all of their accrued power and influence to make up a bullshit document for a political hit job on their political rivals and used it and laundered it through the media to the FBI. Is, is any of this making your head spin yet? So, ha having worked on both of Bill Clinton's successful presidential campaigns and Hillary Clinton's unsuccessful 2008 presidential campaign, this source was revealed on Thursday to be Chuck Dolan, a public relations executive who had Russian contacts and referred to as PR Executive One in the indictment. So, again, we're using the Clintons are using their influence and their allies in Democratic think tank institutions to create bullshit allegations, launder those to Christopher Steele, who is a Russian or not Russian, a British ex-spy who's in uh, working for Fusion GPS to create the Steele dossier. The Steele dossier then gets laundered to, you know, the media outlets. I think Yahoo News was one of them, which then is cited as a source in the FISA courts. So it's all just circular references here, people. None of this was validated. And in 2017, the FBI knew this dude was freaking lying about everything. But no, we still had to go through and have the Mueller investigation, and all this bullshit about Russia collusion for four freaking years. So, continuing in the article, the Obama Justice Department brought the FBI's sworn claims to the secret federal Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, FISA, in 2016. Though the FBI is supposed to verify its allegations before going to court, it apparently did not interview Danchenko, the main source for the dossier, until January of 2017, by which time it was obtaining its second 90-day spy warrant. This organization is filled with corruption. It is a den of corruption and villainy, and everyone should be swept out it needs to be completely rebuilt at this point. The FBI is 
I, I want to say it's beyond saving. The next president has got to clean house in all of these executive institutions. They are full of political hacks and partisans who do not care about the American people. They do not care about the facts and they do not care about protecting the country. They care about furthering their political agenda and their political viewpoint more than they care about doing the right thing. Continuing, it appears that Durham theorizes that the Trump-Russia collusion narrative was a political attack manufactured by the Clinton campaign, relying on Danchenko, Steele compiled the reports for Glenn Simpson, co-founder of intelligence firm Fusion GPS, which specializes in digging up political dirt. Fusion GPS was retained for the Trump project by Perkins Coy, the Clinton campaign's law firm. So we are now, it's what, November of 2021, and October 2016, so we are... Five years, five years since the first bullshit FISA warrant was granted that kicked off over four years of bullshit and wild conspiracy. People talk about people on the right wing being conspiracy theorists and then this shit comes out. What do you expect? At this point, the running joke, which is true, I believe, at this point, What's the difference between a conspiracy theory and the truth? And the answer is like six months. Well, guess what? Yeah, I think that's about true at this point. The freaking Clintons should be in prison for this shit. The FBI should be absolutely cleared out. The CIA is probably just as bad, as well as, well as the NSA, which is tracking everything you do online digitally. They built like a facility up in Utah or some shit that just the amount of data storage and data warehousing that's going on there is sickening. The federal government has more power, I think, than anyone realizes. And now that they're partnering with big tech like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, and work and having big tech work as an arm of the federal government too, like this is getting scary. We are well on the way to being Venezuela. But so my question now is, with all of this info that's come out five years after the fact, when the FBI knew about it in 2017, this damage, like, how much damage did this dossier do to the country? How many people were, you, were saying, oh, well, Trump, Russia, Trump, Russia, Russiagate. Oh, you know, he likes the Russians, Vladimir Putin. Like, how many people bought that narrative, first of all? Second of all, how much time, energy, manpower, and money was wasted on this shit that was nothing? And B, and sorry, I'm so pissed I can't say the alphabet straight anymore. C, D, whatever letter I'm on, I feel like Biden. How do we remedy all of this damage that has been done? There is no, for me, there's no institutional trust left. I barely trust the court and the judicial system. I have zero trust in the freaking FBI, CIA, NSA, federal government. No one in this government has the American people's best interests at heart anymore. 
How do we remedy all the damage done by the Fusion GPS steel dossier? Is Hillary Clinton ever going to go to jail for anything? Destroying classified documents? Hosting her own email server while she's working for the, the government, which is highly illegal? Fabricating information through her freaking liberal think tanks to spy on a political opponent? Will any of this, will any of these people be held accountable? And don't act like there's no way that Obama didn't know about this too. All of them. Every single one of them is more corrupt than the last. So how do we remedy this when we are this far gone? Like, I'm, this is a legit question. With all of the implications that this has, how do we remedy the FBI being just a complete shill of an organization? How do we remedy all of the damage that was done by the Steele dossier? Tweet your answers at me. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm lost on this one. Because if people can do this, if the elites... If the leaders can do this and have no backlash have, and there's no recourse, we're screwed. We are absolutely screwed. Because now we're just giving, we're giving immense power to people who are lucky enough or rich enough to buy their way into federal government or who get into the FBI and want to do the bidding of whatever political party they affiliate with. There has got to be some retribution. There has got to be some justice from this. Just having Danchenko go to prison is not even close to enough. Not even close. All right, we'll wrap up with some more corruption since there's not enough in the FBI. Um, Biden is trying, is trying to use OSHA to force down a federal vaccine mandate. Um, this is actually some good news. The Fifth Circuit put an immediate stay on it, citing gross constitutional problems or grave constitutional problems, um, saying it was staggeringly overbroad. Um, and the Daily Wire actually is the lead plaintiff in, a, in the Sixth Circuit Court. Um, against this mandate. So some news came out just, I think, yesterday, where um, after Biden and the administration were telling companies, you should keep trying to implement this because blah, 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 because I'm an asshole, and telling people to ignore the courts because he's a dick, um, finally they backed off, and OSHA says they will not attempt to coerce anyone to implement this until after the court cases are done. So the battle rages on small victory. Um, hopefully it continues. And then, uh, for anyone who's a, a fan of art, any art fans in the house, um, Hunter Biden, the, the famous artist who's never sold a painting in his life until, you know, his dad became president, had his private art showing, um, back on the 10th. So, Oh, and that was closed door. We don't know who was there. But, you know, the most most transparent presidency ever. Right. Um, 
lot, lot of bad stuff going on, but also some, some bright spots. So I do think there's some hope guys. Um, but again, we just got, we got to open our eyes to this stuff and we got to figure out how, how do we, how do we right the wrongs and, you know, fix the corruption that's, that's becoming endemic in our government. Um, something to think about. I wish I had some answers, but at the moment I don't. Maybe some of you guys do. Well, enjoy your weekend. Have a good one, guys. And uh, as always, this has been Unpopular Opinions. Thanks for listening to Unpopular Opinions with Nick. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star review wherever you're listening to your podcast. You can also interact with us on Facebook and Instagram at unpopularopinions.tm. Have a good one.